perfectly. You should forgive perfectly. You should never stop forgiving. And he's using a phrase that was originally used with evil and malicious intent. And he's repossessing it and saying, God thinks that you should forgive without ever stopping. This would have been a shocking thing for Jesus to say, especially using this quote. College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gavin. If you know uh, much about me, you know that I'm not very artistic. Uh, I don't have pretty much any capacity for really anything that could fall under the label of art. Um, just none of it really goes well with me. But I did make one time a jewelry box for my mom. Uh, it was like one of those like ceramic places and... I painted it. Um, it was terrible. Uh, but my mom still has it to this day. She still has that jewelry box. And the reason why is because, obviously, like, for having a son that just never did anything artistic, I, I didn't draw pictures. I didn't, like, color in coloring books. Like, I hated all of that stuff. And so for her, the effort that I put into making this jewelry box for her that was, again, terrible, uh, it was special. It meant something because... I put the effort in because I cared about my mom, right? So that's why it, it mattered to her. I'm, I'm pretty sure she still has it to this day. Um, you know, when we think about, like, giving gifts, we know, like, you know, there's kind of like the stereotypical thing, like, on Father's Day, you give your dad, like, a tie, right? And as a kid, it's, it's even worse because, like, you bought the tie with his money. And so <laughs> it's just, like, not, not a lot of effort goes into that, right? But at the same time, if your dad gives you money to buy him a gift be, because you're just a little kid and you're actually excited about buying him the gift, it still means something to him, right? Like, it doesn't matter what you get him as much as it matters that you wanted to get him something, and it doesn't matter that he gave you the money to get it in the first place. What matters is that you care about him and you you wanted to to give him something. You wanted to... And, and I've talked about this before, like, we know that the gift isn't the point, right? The gift represents something. You know, when we get things from God, it's like if, if your parents gave you something sentimental and, like, you lost it, and then you assumed, like, well, I also lost their love because I lost this item. It's like, that's not how it works, right? Like, the item itself is a representation of how much they love you. That's why they gave it to you, right? And so we kind of understand these things intrinsically when it comes to gift giving. And the, the interesting thing is when it comes to God, we actually can't give God anything that he didn't already give us. It doesn't, it, it's impossible, right? Because you can't attain anything that God didn't give you. You don't have anything that God didn't give you, get, did, that he didn't already give you. So you can't then turn around and manufacture something for him. I heard somebody say once that the only thing we bring God is our sin. That's the only thing that you have to offer God. Everything else that you're giving back to Him, including your own self, He is the one that, that is sustaining that and giving that to you, right? And you have to turn around and, and give it back to Him. Why? Because you, you love Him. See, when you, when you love someone, we also know that like this will manifest, it will come out in your love language. And we know that 
if you don't love somebody, it's really hard to fake loving them, right? Like, if your love language is quality time, then you're, you don't spend time with people that you don't care about or you don't love. It doesn't work like that, right? And it doesn't take a lot of effort to spend time with the people you do love because that's how you express it. That's how you understand love. It's the same with whether you're a gift giver, maybe you're a words person. When you love someone, if you're a words person, you can't help but affirm them. You'll tell them, right? Meanwhile, if you want to compliment, if you're a words person, you want to compliment somebody you don't really care about, you're like, your hair doesn't look awful today. And it's like hard to like get, figure out how to like love that person in that way, right? And it's fake. And I, and when I love my, when I love my wife, there's obviously like a passive form of that, which is like, I don't cheat on her, right? But, but it would be weird if that was like the, the baseline. It was like, well, what do you want from me? I didn't cheat on you today. Like that, that wouldn't like register as like a loving thing, right? So for me to love my wife, I have to do it actively. I have to go out of my way and I have to put her first and I have to do things to, to show her that I love her. Right? So we, again, we understand all of this and, and we often say that loving God is obeying Him, like obeying Him and obeying His commands. But honestly, that's, that's a little bit just the passive form, right? That's all the stuff you shouldn't do if you love somebody. You shouldn't cheat on God with your sin, with your idols, with your false gods, if you love him. But that's really the passive route, right? And, and that seems to be the only thing we ever focus on, what we shouldn't be doing. But the reality is there's things that we should do. We should give ourselves to God. We should give our best to God because we love him. Our heart towards God is revealed by the actions we take towards him by the things we'll give to Him. And we can see in our actions what we can't see inside of ourselves. Uh, we're in a series on Genesis. Last week, we looked at the fall, and we talked about this crash, right? This horrifying moment when we lost everything, when everything that was perfect was damaged and marred and, and sent on a downward spiral. And this week... If, if last week was the fall, this week is the fallout. It's everything that comes as a consequence of the sin that has now entered the world, just the natural unfolding of human history that had to occur because of the separation from God and the sin that's in the world. And we're going to see that exactly what God said would happen is happening, right? We're going to see that the seed that's promised to Eve it's going to begin progressing forward to redeem us, to save us from the fall. And at the same time, it's already going to be battling the seed of the serpent. We're going to see that at the, at the very first stages, the promise that God made that the seeds would do battle, that they would be enemies, is already unfolding. There's obviously a perfect version of this, right? There's, we know that that promised seed, that one, is Jesus Christ. And we know that he and Satan are completely opposed to each other, and that's the battle that's being referred to in Genesis chapter 3. But everything leading up to that is, is a shadow of that same reality, of that thing that is promised to come. It actually helps us because our whole lives we can look at what's happening around us, what's happening in the world, and we can see the very promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 unfolding daily, in day in, day out, 
in the world that we live in. Now the question as we look at Cain and Abel is, are you the seed of Eve, the mother of all the living, or are you the seed of the serpent? Are you someone who is living out actions that reveal in your heart that you are a child of the enemy of the holy God? Or are you living out actions that show that you are God's child, one of His? So the first thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at the the difference between a sacrificial heart and a selfish heart. Uh, Look with me at Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have obtained a male child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from from their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering... He had no regard, so Cain became very angry, and his face was gloomy. So Eve, first thing I want you to see is that Eve has her mind essentially blown right here, right? She's promised that through her, there will be descendants, that mankind will progress to this point where they will be redeemed and saved. She's never had a child when that statement is made. She doesn't know what childbirth is is really going to be all about. And in this moment, her exclamation is one of of astonishment. She says, with the help of the Lord, his promise is being fulfilled. The seed is now progressing into the world. And, And she is, I think in this moment, seeing her faith rewarded, lived out, because she had to believe on simply God's word that there would be a redemption. And now all of a sudden she can see it. And God does this in our lives. He gives us demonstrations of the promises that he's fulfilling, right? If you are a child of the living God, God is showing you in sanctification that you are becoming more Christ-like. Why? Because he's promised you that at the end of all things, you will be made perfectly Christ-like. So God shows Eve that this that his promise is coming true, and she has faith in that. Uh, she has uh, Cain's brother Abel, and it it will almost exclusively refer to Abel as the brother of Cain through this entire story because it's emphasizing how horrible what's going to happen happens, uh, how horrible that thing is. Um, and then we see that one of them is essentially a farmer and the other one's a rancher. That's a little bit uh, oversimplified, but they they essentially, one of them works with sheep and the other one is working with the ground, plowing the fields, right? And uh, And then it says, in the course of time, they bring offerings. Now, there's a lot of debate over whether or not uh, you can see in the text that the offerings have a difference in quality. And the author is both goes out of his way to make this clear and yet leaves just enough ambiguity in it that you have to look at something else to understand whether or not this offering, uh, each of these offerings is equal or not. So what we see is that Abel... He not only brings the firstborn of his flock, but he brings their fat portions. What this is describing, and if we if we were to delve real deep into uh, the Levitical law and all the things about the sacrifices, what the Israelites would have understood reading this text is 
He brought the best that he had. He gave and he didn't hold anything back. He brought everything that, uh, that was, that showed that he loved the Lord, right? This is, this is like, again, back to relationships. Like we know if we love someone, like truly love them and we're putting them first, that we'll give them our best. We won't hold back, kind of give them the scraps because what is that? message does that send? It sends like, I actually don't love you more than I love me. That's really like the bottom line of that, right? And so God is looking for the same thing. Cain uh, brings what is described as a, a portion of the fruits of the ground, but it doesn't, the text does not go out of its way to describe this portion of fruit as being anything really special. Now, it doesn't say that he brought him wilted lettuce. It just means he didn't go out of his way to bring the best that he possibly could offer. He just kind of brought something because he thought, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm required to do. And the, really, the way that we see that is actually not in the offering. And here's why. Is it possible that Cain could have just said, you know, we're supposed to bring the best, so... I'll separate really the best I've got and I'll take that. I don't want to do it, but I'll take it. Is it possible that he, that he manages to bring physically the, the best that he has? Yeah, it's possible. So the question is, does, would that have changed the offering? Would that have changed God's acceptance of it if he had actually brought the physical best that he had? And the author is, is going out of his way to make the point that it's not actually about what they each brought. There is an apparent difference, but the apparent difference isn't about what they brought, the apparent difference is because of what's going on in their hearts. They brought different quality offerings because they loved the Lord differently. And the way that we see that is that when Cain's offering is rejected, he gets angry. He doesn't say, oh no, I, I, I guess I did that wrong or I, I messed up or maybe I should have brought, I, I knew I was doing the wrong thing. I should have brought the better stuff. He gets mad. He's furious. He's not just furious with God, which is defying what we know the most important command in the Bible, to love the Lord, but he's also furious at his brother, which is the second greatest command, to love others, right? And so in this moment, he is revealing what's in his heart by his reaction to, uh, to God's discipline of him. Like we know that the Lord chastens those he loves. He disciplines those he loves, right? So in this moment, Cain is being disciplined. He's being told, you didn't do the right thing and you knew it. And instead of repenting, he doubles down. Cain's attitude, uh, Cain's attitude reveals that the, a bad offering, uh, which reveals a bad attitude, right? It's, it's a kind of a cycle, right? You can look at your actions and see what's going on in your heart and you'll know what's going on in your heart because you see your actions, right? And that is what Cain is, is living out right here. The Old Testament minor prophets, they hit this again and again and again because uh, at some point in Israel's history, they really go away from idols, that, uh, like actual idol worship. They stop kind of polluting the temple and they become really legalistic. They become so legalistic that they stop caring for anybody. They just think, well, we got to do the rituals. We got to you know, get all the rules. And so Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet, you'll see them come, come forward in the, in the late parts of the Old Testament and go, you think you're good because you're keeping all the the ins and outs of the intricate laws, but you hate people. You're not caring for anybody. You don't love the Lord. You don't love others. What makes you think you're good with God because of this? 
right? And that, that happens over and over and over again. And we're seeing that all the way back in Genesis chapter four, because Cain, uh, he was technically doing the right thing, but it, his heart didn't match. And that is what God was rejecting in him. The other thing that's happening here, think about the audience. Israel has been described over and over again. They know this. They live in this reality that they are the firstborn of God. That's what they're told. Well, think about what's happening here. The firstborn of Eve, he's being rejected because it's not an automatic. It's not just, oh, you're the firstborn, so everything's going to be good for you. God's going to bless you, and everything's going to be great. And that's a message to the nation of Israel. Oh, you're the firstborn of God, huh? So you just got it easy. You can just slide on into heaven. Nope, that's not how it's going to work. Right? You have to actually have faith and follow God. You have to look to Him to save you. You don't have some, and we just went through Romans, and Paul harps on this over and over again in Romans. He's like, you think because you're a Jew that you just, that's it? Just free ticket? That's not how this works. In verse 5, Cain doesn't respond in repentance. He responds in rebellion. He gets angry. That verse in my Bible says his face was gloomy. It means that his face went down. Okay, now, I want you to see this, in, in that's idiom language, right? What it meant is that when you looked to God, you were approving of God, and when he looked to you, he was approving of you. And in this moment, what's happening is that Cain is, is looking away from God. It's, it's not a, a physical phrase. It means that his lifestyle is one in which he is not looking to God to lead it. He's not submitting to the Lord. He is walking in darkness with his face downcast. He is ruling his own life. That's what's happening right here. We are supposed to look to God always. That is how the Christian life is, is lived. There's times, I mean, you see this with Peter walking on water, right? Peter is walking on water as long as he is looking at Jesus Christ. He begins to sink when he starts looking at all the troubles and, and the, the problems that are around him. That is the Christian life. If you take your eyes off God, and what does Peter do in the very next second? The exact opposite of what Cain does. In the very next second as Peter is drowning, he says, Lord, save me. And it says that Jesus immediately pulled him out of the water. Right? Cain has that opportunity here to be saved from his sin, but we're going to see that he is going to double down. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face gloomy? If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the first thing is, is God questions him, which is the opportunity. It's, it's like conviction, right? God questions him to give him the opportunity to turn away from his sin. And you can almost translate God's phrase as, as sounding like this. Why won't you look at me? Am I not right? Like, am I not righteous and you clearly wrong in this situation? I mean, we say this to, to each other, right? You know when you're the one that's wrong because you, you're so mad about it, you won't even look at the person, right? And, and that person goes, why don't you look at me? Am I, not, am I making a mistake? Am I the one that's messing up? That's almost the, the, the tone that God is taking with him. In, in verse 7, God says, if you follow me, won't you be approved? Right? Now, it's not works-based salvation, it's that those who have faith in the Lord, they follow Him. It's a natural consequence. It's the outflowing of what they believe in their heart is their actions. And, and, and God is saying, if your heart is one of faith, if you're a follower of me, won't I approve of you? I'm not holding out. 
I'm not, I, I don't have the door slammed shut and locked. I'm waiting for you to, to follow me, right? He's appealing to Cain in this moment. And he says, and if you don't do this, sin is crouching at your door. The words he uses there, they're the same words that he, he talks to Eve about in the curse. He says, the sin desires you, Cain. It's hunting you. I want you guys to understand that if you, if you don't understand this, sin is not a passive force in the world. Evil is looking for us. Paul says that, that Satan prowls around like a lion, looking for whom he may devour. Right? The, sin is an active force that is waiting for its opportunity, and God looks at Cain and says, you are about to give a very powerful enemy an opportunity to own you. And he says, you must master it, which simply means turn away from it. Come to me. Don't stay in that place where you're going to give sin an opportunity. And what we're seeing here is the very first instance of the seed of Eve, in a very physical and literal sense, the seed of Eve is fighting the seed of the serpent. Sin is trying to overtake him, is trying to, uh, to wipe out the promise that God has. He says, you must master it. This is Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 4, says this. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. See, in Hebrews, the writer is saying, Right off the bat, with no, with, with no fog in the way, he's saying what made Cain and Abel's uh, sacrifices different was their faith. One of them believed in the Lord. One of them trusted in the Lord. And the other one, he looked away from the Lord. He took his eyes off the Lord and he let sin take the opportunity to enslave him. You can't fake sacrifice enough to God, right? You can't just uh, come to church enough and go down to the altar every Sunday and do communion. Like, you can't do all of these things. You can't fake it till you make it in Christianity. You have to believe that this is what saves you, that what Jesus has done is what saves you. The heart of faith will give God its best. Now we're going to look at the, the hard heart. The hard heart is uh, really the natural state of man. Um, and I want you to see in Jude 11, it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for, and, uh, and for pay they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. If you don't know all those references, Balaam and Korah and Cain, uh, they all have this in common. In their pride, they rebelled against God, and every single one of them perishes apart from God. They all lose because instead of turning and, and humbling themselves before the Lord, they are defeated by the very God that they oppose. And that's what we're seeing with Cain. His heart in this moment is about to be hardened. He's about to double down in his sin. Look at verse 8. Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth. Okay. So, uh, first of all, why is murder, why is murder so bad? Like, why is murder, anytime we think, like, what the worst sin is, oftentimes when we're trying to convince ourselves that we're such a good person, like, I haven't killed anybody, right? Like, that's like the, the ultimate way out of somehow, like, I haven't done anything wrong. Some, like, we pick the max sin, right? That's like a really bad bar, by the way. It's like, if you really wanted to convince yourself, it'd be like, I don't, you know, lie very often, but we, we jump all the way to the worst possible thing, right? And so, the, the question is like, why? Why is murder just the worst sin, if you will? It's because murder is an attack on the very image of God with permanent consequences. Permanent consequences. See, here's the thing. Every time that you hurt people, every time you don't love others, you are attacking the image of God. That is what sin is. It's an attack on God. That's why David said, I've sinned only against you after he actually did commit murder. Because he understood that what he had done was he had attacked the image of God and he had caused permanent damage that could not be undone. God takes murder in the Bible very, very seriously. God in this moment comes to Cain like a parent. Uh, like uh, I talked about last week how he comes to Adam and Eve like a parent and a judge at the same time. He's both giving you a chance to repent and also uh, starting the Inquisi- Inquisition, starting the, the questioning process to convict you of your guilt. And your only chance is, is to stick with the analogy to throw yourself on the mercies of the court, right? You need the mercy that God provides through Jesus Christ to be found innocent because you are in fact guilty. Right, and uh, he he asks him. He says, "Where's your brother?" And then my favorite phrase that people quote from the Bible is Cain says, "Am I my brother's keeper?" And I always remind you guys when you say that 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 happens right after a murder. So quit saying that. <laughs> so I'll be like, "Where's this person?" I'm like, "Am I my brother's keeper?" I'm like, so you killed him. That's where we are. Okay. So. <laughs> So he says, am I my brother's keeper? And I want you to see the significance of that phrase. It actually really, I didn't know this. It really struck me. Um, What I like to do is I like to find the emphasis that would be so important to the original audience. The nation of Israel was told over and over and over again that they were a nation of brothers, that they were responsible for each other that they were responsible for not taking advantage of each other, for not hurting each other, for lifting each other up. That's why Israel had some of the craziest laws in ancient times for taking care of the poor. Like like insanely awesome laws for taking care of the poor. The book of Ruth uh, outlines some of that stuff. We see that, that they intentionally wouldn't go back for grain that they had passed so that poor people could get it and eat. And think about like even our society today, like I don't cut corners to help other people. I'm trying to make a profit. Like That's how our society works. But their their society said, even the poorest among us are our brothers. That's how the church is supposed to be. We are literally supposed to be living out that same brotherly love. But to the nation of Israel, as soon as Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? They would have cringed. Immediately they were like, oh, that's the wrong answer. That is the wrong answer. right? Because they knew that, yes, in fact, You are your brother's keeper. You are supposed to love the community around you. You are supposed to lift each other up. You don't get to write off 
the people to your left and your right. And, and the Bible is pretty clear in the New Testament that if you're the kind of person that doesn't care about the people around you in the church, like your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're probably not one of them. It, it, it's just that simple. If you have no love for the body, you may not be in it. And then he, he, he says, you are cursed from the ground. Now, I want you to understand this is the first time a, a person is cursed, right? Adam and Eve themselves don't get cursed in chapter 3. But he says, you are cursed from the ground. And, uh, and it's the same language when the serpent is told that he is cursed to uh, crawl on the ground and eat the dust, right? So the language is paralleled. Why? Because in this moment, the author is making it very clear to you that in this moment right here, Cain has identified himself fully as the seed of the serpent. He has joined the other team. And, and notice when this happened. It didn't happen when he, got, when he brought the wrong offering. It didn't even happen when he got angry about the wrong offering. It happened when he went into full-fledged rebellion. He defied God and he said, no, I don't want to be on your team. I want to kill my brother because I'm angry, because I'm, I hate him. Right When he finally did that, God identifies him and says, your heart shows me, your actions show me your heart, and your heart is the seed of the serpent. Now, he is cursed to be, a, to be on the other team, to be apart from God. In verse 12, um, I want you to understand the language that's happening here, the curse that's given to him. It's an exile. It's an exile from the land. And if, if you've been here for the last three weeks, what we've been talking about is that almost every reference to the land, to the original audience, it would have rung out as the promised land. They would have seen it in that moment as the land that God prepared for us. He's, he, he has set apart. He's promised us we're going to get it. Keep in mind, as they're reading this, they're not there yet. They haven't like made it into the promised land. They're in the wilderness, but they've been told you're going into the land. And the land that they are just dying to get into, they read this portion and they see that, that that's God's land, that's their land, and Cain has just been told he's exiled from it. He's losing out, not just on the land, but on being where God is. He's being kicked out of the presence of the Lord, exiled from God. And I want you to understand, this is... It's not even that God is just levying this against him. It is the consequence of his actions. It's his choice. He has decided in this moment to, to follow his heart through actions that take him away from God. He can't be in the presence of the Lord. You see this with people who uh, they play around with church for long enough. They're here and they, they're interested, but they, they have something in their life that they like more that they want more than church, it's really hard for them to be at church. Why? Because somehow the Holy Spirit's going to prod them just about every Sunday that what they're doing is wrong. They're going to walk in and whoever's teaching the lesson is going to say one sentence and the Holy Spirit's just going to like slap them up the back of the head and be like, are you listening? And and that gets old. Like you, If you are in rebellion to God, it's hard to sit through that. And eventually you won't. You will follow that action away from God. You won't turn away from your sin. I mean, you can, but if you don't, then you will be exiled from God's presence. It's the consequence of sin, and it's a lesson to Israel as they go into the land that they can lose it. Just because they're the firstborn doesn't mean it's an automatic. Look at verse 13. 
Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to endure. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and I will be hidden from your face, and I will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him seven times as much. Okay. So, some people here, they want to see that Cain is repenting. That's not what's happening. Cain is not being uh, repentant here. Cain is definitely realizing that the punishment uh, outweighs the crime. Like, he, he uh, it's, it, not that it's an over-punishment, it's that he's realizing all of a sudden what he gained from committing the crime wasn't worth it. He's like, ah, I wish I hadn't done that because this is horrible, right? There's a remorse there, but there's not a repentance. He's not sorry for what he did. He's sorry that he has to endure the punishment. And he's completely worried about himself. Uh, he does notice a truth here at the end. It seems God never, God doesn't tell him you're going to go away and I'm going to let people kill you. What he's acknowledging is the reality that in this day and time, being outside of the family structure, outside of society, meant survival. Like it, it was not, the wilderness is not a, uh, a pleasant place if you've ever been stuck in it for very long. It, it will try to kill you. And it, he is being forced outside of the safety and the confines of family and society into a place where he's going to have to survive. And on top of that, uh, he, it, in this period of time, they also had um, uh, blood feuds. And a blood feud means, well, if you kill a member of my family, we're going to come kill a member of your family, right? Now, we don't know at this point in the story. We've only been introduced to four humans. Uh, potentially, that's all there is right now. Uh, maybe that's not all there is. But either way, he is aware that somebody could take vengeance on him at some point in the future. He knows, especially that if he's alone, he's vulnerable to that attack. And then this is the part that really messed with me. It seems like God just like suddenly takes mercy on him, uh, but like in an unwarranted way. Like he hasn't, he hasn't even really repented or asked for forgiveness, and God just kind of goes out of his way to just say like, "I'll protect you." And I, and then as I read in the commentaries, the language here again, it's similar to language in Deuteronomy about cities of refuge. So. Again, a lot of the things that, that the writer is talking about in the early parts of Genesis, they are things that the people of Israel would have been very familiar with. So as they're hearing this story, they are seeing God's provision of cities of refuge for people who, uh, who commit murder to go escape to, not to avoid punishment, but to avoid, but to actually be punished by the legal system and not just by somebody who's angry looking for vengeance, right? And so that is the similar language that Cain is being given right here. And why is that? Because uh, for God, the further shedding of blood against his image is not a win. God is not uh, out there just going, yeah, you know, just wipe each other out. No, he wants to prevent the escalation of this violence. It is a horrible thing when a human being is killed. That's a terrible reality. And God has made a way for this to not escalate, right? He's trying to prevent just this kind of uh, eye for an eye mentality that's going to that's gonna take place. Um, and, and it also shows that God retains complete sovereignty over life and death, right? God is saying, I'm not going to let anybody kill you. And if they do, they are going to be, uh, uh, you're going to be avenged by me, right? And he says seven times, Remember, that number is for perfection. What he's saying is, you will be perfectly avenged. I will take care of whoever hurts you. I will make sure that they don't get away with it, right? So this is an intimidating 
uh, protective act, right? It's, it's essentially uh, God is stating, putting uh, a line in the sand and telling all of humanity, don't cross this, don't do it like this, right? If, you're, if you uh, act like this, you will be taken care of by me personally, right? So we see that Cain has doubled down in his sin. He has faced away from God. He is lost and drifting. He is just moving through life apart from God. All hearts have the same choice as Cain. All hearts have that hardness that they can turn away from towards God or not. But, uh, but all hearts are damaged. All hearts have been damaged by sin. And the seed of that sin that comes in, in Genesis chapter 3, it is dragging all of humanity down uh, to try and kill us. Look at verse. Look at the end of verse fifteen. And the Lord placed a mark on Cain, so that no one finding him would kill him. Then Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain built a city and named the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Ered, and Ered fathered Mehujal. And Mehujal fathered Methushal, Methushal, and Methushal fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, and he named the one, uh, and the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of, the, of, of all those who play the lyre and the flute. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubalcain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubalcain was Nama. Okay. So Cain walks away from God. The, the phrase, uh, he settled in Nod. Nod is a play on words. It actually is this, it's a similar word to wanderer. Um, so it's like, how can he settle if he's a wanderer? I think the imagery that you're being given here is not so much that he never lived in one place ever again. It's that he wandered in his life outside of the presence of God. Because if you are not uh, standing on the rock of ages, right, the, the, the solid foundation, you are a drifter. All of your life you are uh, in, that's why we call them lost people, right? So Cain has entered this phase of his life where he is drifting away from God. And we see that this, he's given this sign, and to be real honest with you, no one knows what the sign is, right? It's like, some people equate it to a, another portion of Scripture that talks about uh, people being given a protective sign on their forehead. Obviously, there's uh, there's imagery that you could connect it to about the mark of the beast and things like this. I don't think really any of those are the connection that's that makes sense. Um, again, there's not a definitive answer. I'll tell you my favorite. Uh, there was a, there. I read one scholar that said that if this language is supposed to be about the city of refuge, that the sign is the city he founds, right? So the sign he's given is a city that is a place where you cannot uh, pursue someone who is taking refuge. So that is the sign. Um, an interesting thought. I can't prove it, uh, but it was the best one I read. So um, so we see that he uh, we see that he builds this city. Uh, and then we have generations, Adam to Lamech. And Lamech is the seventh person in the line going through Adam. So again, uh, and, and why do we know that's significant? 
because we're gonna we're gonna in a few weeks we're gonna t- talk about uh, Genesis chapter five. And when we talk about Genesis chapter five, we're gonna see the line of Seth. And the line of Seth, the seventh person from Adam through the line of Seth, is Enoch on Seth's side, who is about as godly a man as ever existed. Right. So on the on the seventh, the perfect uh, generational away from Adam is uh, through Seth is somebody who is godly and holy. And going through Cain is probably one of the most evil people we'll see in the Bible right up front. Right. So we we look and we see Lamech. Uh, and the first thing we see about him is that he has two wives. Now, I, I want you guys to understand there's this criticism of the Bible out there that is can only be held if you don't read the Bible, which is that uh, it, it supports polygamy. Um, and you can look and you can see places where it, do, it seems like the Bible's passive about polygamy. I want you to understand something. The Bible never describes polygamy in a positive light, and it never shows you a situation where polygamy works out. For the better. It doesn't ever. Um, and, and right off the bat, this is the first person in the Bible who is said to have more than one wife. And that is an indicator. That is the introduction to this character that is for you, the ancient Israelite audience, to know this guy sucks. Like right off the bat, and that's how we're going to title him. He had two wives, right? And so everyone knows this is not a good guy. We know this is not a good guy. So, uh, he has two wives, and his sons, they really build society. They're responsible for music and shepherding and for building what we think. Uh, we think Tubal-Cain uh, built the first weapons in human history. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of scientific advancement. There's a lot of uh, progress. But I want you to understand something. All these things that they accomplish, that's all they get. That's what they're known for. They accomplish and they get... Uh, to be the people who build society. And their line, almost exclusively, is shown to be a a group of people that never follow the Lord. So they get to uh, attain these achievements, and they get to end up separated from the Lord in hell. So they get nothing. Um, Look at verse 23. Lamech, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Okay, so humanity is so evil at this point through the line of Cain that they are that this man is bragging about murder, and he's not just bragging about murder. Uh, the The Hebrew doesn't seem to make that as two different people. It's he's talking about a single murder of a younger man, and he's saying he did it for basically an injury maybe even less, maybe even an offense, right? But the point is he's saying, I'll kill anybody who messes with me. I'll stomp on somebody. I don't care. And and he even says, if Cain was avenged seven times, I'll, by God, I'll avenge myself even more than that to infinity. I'll never not repay an offense to me with evil, right? This man is is the epitome at this point of evil this is going to be the guy that we see why we're getting to a place where we need a flood, right? Because there's people in society who think this is, I mean, Lamech is not so far from the garden that he doesn't know that God is real. I want you to understand that. There were no atheists in Genesis, okay? These people knew that God was real, and they doubled down in their pride. They said, I don't care. I don't need God. 
The other thing that's interesting about this quote is he says, he either says <coughs> 77 times or he says 70 times seven. Um, there's debate on how the, the phrase works, but here's the cool part. This is the phrase that Jesus is going to quote to Peter much later when Peter suggests, how many times should we forgive someone, right? So they, they were taught you should always forgive somebody three times. That was their popular tradition. And Peter, thinking he's going to one-up that, he says, well, Lord, how many times should we forgive somebody? Because I think we should forgive them seven times. And, and Jesus is going to quote Lamech, and he's going to say, no, you should, you should forgive them seven times 70 or 77 times. What, what, God, what Jesus is saying right there is you should forgive infinitely. You should forgive perfectly. You should never stop forgiving. And he's using a phrase that was originally used with evil and malicious intent. And he's repossessing it and saying, God thinks that you should forgive without ever stopping. This would have been a shocking thing for Jesus to say, especially using this quote. Look at verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a, uh, to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another child in place of Abel because Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. Eve is thanking God again. Think about this. The devil's plot to wipe out the seed was pretty successful. He got a two for one. The only two that existed at that time. Right? Because he got Cain to abandon the Lord, and he got Cain to take out Abel. Right? So the, the two uh, people that were supposed to begin the process of the seed they're now wiped out in one fell swoop. And so then God blesses Eve with another seed. He, he, God refuses to be stopped. The reason I call this series the March of Redemption is because I want you to see that against all odds, God keeps redemption moving forward. He didn't allow it to stop. That way it could be, it could make it all the way to right here, right now for you. Like it could have, it could have been overcome so many times in the book of Genesis and you would have never been able to get it. But God is so powerful that against all odds, using us in our weakness, he marched it one generation after another through all of time to get it all the way into this room so that people right here could receive the promise of redemption. It says in the last line that people began to call on the name of the Lord. Um, this is actually a really cool phrase. Um, this this phrase means that people began to orient themselves to the redemption that was to come. They were actually, in, in this moment, doing exactly what we do today, which is asking God to come. Asking God to return and to finish what He started. right? And they're doing the exact same thing. And they have even less... I mean, we know that the, the promise has already been kept and will be kept perfectly again. Uh, they had even less to go off of. They looked into the future with just the word of God, just the promise that redemption would come, and they cried out for it. They worshiped the Lord and they said, come now and redeem us. Fix what's going on here. And that's, that's going through the line of Seth that begins to orient people to, um, to the Lord. And what you see here is the parallel. All of Cain's descendants, they're known for all these great things, and every single one of them is separated from the Lord and will will be will perish without him forever. Meanwhile, Seth and Enosh, they began to cry out to the Lord 
for redemption, and that's what they're known for, and that's what they they'll be in heaven someday. And quite frankly, I I want I want to be known for that. I want to be known for my worship, for my obedience to the Lord. I don't want to be known for I don't know inventing something. Like that's not going to do me any good someday. Everyone's hearts are damaged. But some people double down on their sin and others worship the Lord and turn away from sin. When you look at your actions, does it tell you whether or not you're the seed of the serpent or the seed of the living God? Like, if you are not yet a child of the living God, I want you to understand that sin is crouching at your door. It's trying to overwhelm you. It's trying to take you away from God permanently. And you must turn away from it. You must master it. guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.